Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 24. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we chat cutting-edge intel with the one and only Matt Bromley, followed by an interview with Heidi and Bruce Potter, the dynamic duo behind the much-loved ShmooCon. Welcome to our weekly Intel chat. During this segment, we're going to be talking about some of the curated information coming out of the Intel channel on Lima Charlie's community Slack. Joining me to help us go deep is the one and only Matt Bromley. Thanks for being here, Matt. Hey, it's great to be back here. I love being able to get down and talk about some of the things that we're seeing in our community Slack. So thanks for having me again, as always. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, the obvious one we need to talk about is the Microsoft Outlook bug reported last week, noted as CVE 2023-23397. This one terrifies me as no user action is required to trigger the exploit. This is what is known as a zero-touch exploit and affects all versions of Windows Outlook. It requires low complexity to abuse and requires no user interaction. How is it possible that this exploit allows bad actors to run code and take control of their machines without any interaction from the user? Yeah, so Chris, I think this is something, this is an interesting CVE, because uh, first off, I believe we are seeing it exploited in the wild, which is always the barometer for just how bad is this thing, right? We've talked about this in previous uh, sessions where we've talked about whether something is kind of an academic exercise in exploitation, or whether it's actively being uh, exploited in, in the wild. This one's actively being exploited, which always raises the criticality and severity of patching. This one is an interesting one. It is a vulnerability that stems from a malicious email. That email does not need to be opened for it to work. For years, there's been these groups of vulnerabilities. And I think, we again, we talked about this previously, where the computer is going to try and do something to meet the user in the middle. And you got to remember that you don't just receive an email anymore. You receive an email. You get a preview of it on certain operating systems. You, see, you get a notification. A sound is made. Um, if there's a calendar entry with that email, your calendar automatically reflects that incoming email. You know, there's plenty of times where I'll receive a calendar invite as an email, but I don't actually see the email. I see the calendar invite on my calendar. And what's happened there is you've got these applications linked to each other. And this is kind of what normal computing looks like for us is an email comes in and that content is automatically parsed. It's automatically analyzed. We've got all sorts of ridiculous AI integrations now. Long story short, receiving an email and never opening it does not mean nothing ever happens to that email. And I think this is where that vulnerability comes in is uh, there were some folks doing some research and I I read a few write-ups on this one. It was absolutely fantastic the way it came together, but essentially they were modifying a couple of fields in uh, creating new calendar appointments, particularly two fields, the uh, PIDLID reminder file parameter. And I believe the override field, I think might've been the other one. If not, it's, it's, it's the, yeah, override property and the PIDLID reminder file parameter. Um, And what you're, what they've done as part of this vulnerability is essentially put in a path other than what would be legitimate or what would be expected from the application. And that in there lies the vulnerability is that I can point Outlook to open a remote path and there's a couple of things that happen. Again, default Windows behavior, if I provided a, an unk path, if you will, a fully qualified path, which is that slash slash notation that goes through, this then sends out an NTLM authentication. And adversaries know once they get an NTLM authentication request, they can then start to turn that into an NTLM relay attack. And they can kick off all sorts of different attacks against that remote system. And again, without ever launching or opening the email, if you will, uh, what happens is Outlook will reach out to a remote source. And then from there, they can continue to script all sorts of attacks, steal credentials, use those for additional functionalities and things like that. So I, I, I agree. It can be a very, very scary premise to think about. You don't even need to open your email to do a thing. Luckily, there's patches out there uh, and there is ways to find and, and, and you know determine if this has been in your environment. But I like to remind everyone in security, just remember, a lot of vulnerabilities will pop up in this space of that kind of making life easier for the user land, which is the operating system trying to meet the user in the middle, pre-parsing or pre-analyzing or pre-determining what's going on inside. And then that subsequently can trigger off different things. So lots of options there. Um, I would say outside of some of the normal detection routes. You know, educating users as well as another way to say, hey, look, sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes we're just vulnerable. But bear with us through the patching process. But it's an interesting one. And certainly, uh, you know, like I said, seeing this exploited in the wild is what's going to increase that severity for me personally. 
Yeah, and the good news is this exploit is pretty easy to spot. And Florian Roth has released a Sigma rule that you can download and get some detection coverage while you're doing all the patching. And I'll link to the Sigma rule in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, first off, Lima Charlie, we've got native integration with Sigma on the updates when it takes place. And a huge, huge props out to the Sigma community for getting it out there. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I do not know what comes first these days, vulnerability disclosures or the Sigma rule set to support finding these things. But a huge thanks to that community for doing what they do. Yeah, it's great <laughs> stuff. Uh, the next one I got is comes from uh, Google's Threat Analysis Group, or TAG. They recently discovered the usage of an unpatched security bypass in Microsoft's smart screen security, which financially motivated actors are using to deliver the Magnabur ransomware without any security warnings. I can never say the names of these things properly. I know. Some of these are tough, aren't they? Ma- Magnabur, I'm guessing. Magnabur, I think that's it. Anyway, yeah. Tag has observed over 100,000 downloads of the malicious MSI files since January 2023, with over 80% of those directed at users in Europe, which is a notable divergence from Magnabur's typical targeting, which usually focuses on South Korea and Taiwan. Google's safe browsing displayed user warnings for over 90% of those downloads, but it's Mm -hmm. still getting through. So Matt, what is the smart screen and why is this dangerous? Yeah, so again, we we lean back on the operating system trying to help and meet the user in the middle. So smart screen or Microsoft Defender smart screen is that kind of thing that pops up or that analysis capability that protects against phishing and malware websites. So there's kind of part one of smart screen is it analyzes the sites that you're visiting. It looks for suspicious behavior and things like that. It also analyzes uh, potentially malicious files that you might download. I mean, if I described it to you at the onset, hey, this is a thing on your endpoint that will look for malicious files and protect you from visiting phishing sites, you'd absolutely love this thing. But once again, you know, inside of this helping the user side of stuff, is uh, the capability to potentially exploit and the uh, the capability to unfortunately find ways to take advantage of some of these user system functions. So what's happening in this particular case right here is this group, uh, they found that there is a way for them to deliver MSI files or Microsoft installer files signed with specially crafted authenticode signatures. And what's happening essentially is that malform signature, and I'm pulling directly from Google here, causes an error, which results in bypassing the security warning dialogue. So essentially what's happened here is there's some roundabout way of basically saying, hey, I'm going to force an error that's going to bypass what would normally be that wall that we wouldn't be able to move through, but this error lets us get around it. So I think what the group has done is they've, you know, again, found a way, and I believe we've got a CVE associated with this one as well, CVE uh, 2022-44698 was the one from last year, the previous one. And 2023-24880 is the new one. And again, it's utilizing the way that they're crafting signatures or the way that they're crafting certificates for these MSIs, for these installers, and then finding a way to circumvent what Smart Screen was originally designed to do. This, I think, falls in a very similar category of the Outlook vulnerability that we were just talking about. It's a a feature set of an operating system designed to help the user. It's an application designed to help the user. It's going to come with its own inherent vulnerabilities. The other thing, Chris, I think you mentioned, which is an interesting concept to keep in mind here, is the ransomware group shifting their objectives or shifting their targets from a geographical perspective. A couple different reasons that might have come up. Maybe they've kind of run out of steam in their previous targeting areas. Or perhaps they're going to where they see the most representation of this type of service or this type of application. There's another very popular thing that will drive threat actor objectives or directions or victims is where they expect to see their targeted applications or targeted software in use the most. And I'll be honest, I do not know the ratio of defender usage in you know Asia versus Europe versus America and things like that. It's just a numbers game. Yeah, there's likely some statistics somewhere that's driving them towards that. Or they're, you know, thinking, hey, Europe's ripe for the picking right now. So um, it's also very possible that someone just woke up one day and said, all right, it's a brand, it's a new year, clean slate. It's a, it's a new continent. Let's go. So uh, go get patched and I'll link the article in the show notes, which includes a bunch of easy to spot IOCs. So you can make sure you haven't seen this. And patch as soon as you can to not necessarily need to lean on those detections so much. 
Uh, we got another one. It's from Mandiant. They've observed China Nexus actors targeting technologies that do not normally support endpoint detection and response solutions. Things like firewalls, IoT devices, hypervisors, and VPN technologies. And please note that I said they are targeting things that normally don't support EDRs because the Lima Charlie EDR can run across all those technologies or grab logs from them at least. So it's just that most vendors do not. Uh, Mandiant attributes the activity to the group who is associated with the VMware hypervisor malware framework. Uh, Matt, do you know anything about the malware framework they're using here and what can they do once they have a foothold on the network in one of these devices that's not being monitored directly? Yeah, so this group, UNC3886, is, again, you you mentioned it, a China Nexus group. Uh, This group is, they've been blogged about before, I think it was last year, Mandiant came out and talked about how they were targeting, as you mentioned, VMware ESXi hypervisors. Uh, And if you think about the category of, I'm going to call them support hardware or support software, and what I mean by that is systems that provide an additional functionality that users would interact with in an end state. So a hypervisor is a perfect example. 99% of my users will not interact with a hypervisor. They will interact with the VMs that the hypervisor manages. Um, And that 1% or 0.01% are the sysadmins who may interact with that. Uh, At certain stages, you can utilize, you know, Microsoft Windows as a hypervisor, in which case I can put an EDR agent or get some telemetry out of the host system, as well as the child or the, you know, hosted VMs. But when we get to specific types of hardware or specific types of operating systems, VMware ESXi being an example, we start to quickly run out of support from an EDR perspective. Uh, And this group made a little bit of a name for themselves earlier on by targeting those types of systems and finding that, hey, it's just a computer. And just because you don't have EDR support doesn't mean I don't have malware support for it. And they found ways to go after those systems that typically would not fall under normal monitoring, as you mentioned. Let's take that concept and expand it to what that group's been doing now. They've uh, taken advantage of recent Fortinet or FortiGate, FortiManager, and FortiAnalyzer software that have some disclosed vulnerabilities inside of them. And we're in the exact same boat here, right? These Fortinet appliances, and I'm not throwing any shade towards Fortinet, just going off of kind of what Mandiant determined in, in their investigations here. But, uh, you know, Fortinet firewalls or FortiGate firewalls and different security appliances or applications that they've got were shipped with these, you know, software packages. These software packages were found to be vulnerable. And unfortunately, what that means is uh, that with that vulnerability and it's not patched, we've now got this proprietary appliance or proprietary application, this proprietary system. We don't have EDR support for it. Maybe the best we can do is grab logs off of it. But those logs are usually going to tell me about the operational state of that device and the things that it's doing, not that underlying EDR telemetry that we have gotten so used to seeing and basing our detections off of. So you create this interesting gap from a security perspective, which is a portion of an environment. And you also mentioned IoT devices and VPNs, which fall into the exact same category. I've got this subset of hardware or software inside of my environment which doesn't fall under normal EDR purview. I can have 100,000 million systems all with functioning endpoint agents on them, but I can have one vulnerable firewall sitting at the perimeter that allows my adversary to break in. And that's just that, you know, best laid plans, unfortunately, lead to uh, some different outcomes sometimes. But what that does is it gives adversaries a unique way to break into an environment. They can gain that foothold on the network these devices, as you mentioned, are not being monitored directly because the typical EDR support is not there for them. And that gives them a couple of advantages. Number one, they can avoid detection until a patch is applied if they don't go any further. Uh, number two, they have kind of a guaranteed way in. If that vulnerability works and it's not being monitored and not being detected, and I can test it and find that it works multiple times, I've got a, a really nice entry and I might kind of keep that in my back pocket as a way to break in. Uh, but then, of course, you know, you have some groups that also say, oh, there's a way in. Perfect. Uh, this particular threat group right here, UNC3886, utilize those to dig further into an environment and then subsequently go and access through a hypervisor, start to access with the actual sub VMs that were inside of there as well. So getting into those types of devices, your VPNs, your hypervisors, they also open up additional doors, as I'm sure you can imagine, right? If you think about the functionality of a VPN, 
having access to that system gives me insight into the traffic flowing through that system. Sure. And it's a kind of low and slow approach you were talking about last time that an APT will kind of, they'll just get in there and, and wait. Yeah, exactly. And this is, uh, Mania does mention this in, in their blog post. They do talk about kind of the threat actor having the knowledge, the deeper level understanding of such technologies. And I think that's a good way to categorize, you know, this is not just uh, spear phishing until someone clicks or taking advantage of an outlook vulnerability, if you will. This is understanding how to exploit very specific hardware frameworks or very specific software frameworks in order to gain that foothold. Um, and I think, you know, you'll continue to see this again and again and again. And this really is that higher level of adversary thinking where they're not necessarily saying, hey, I'm just going to see where I, where I land, right? Where does my malware fall? They're going to say, I, I'm going after an organization. And Chris, we talked about APTs having maybe those specific target groups, um, but you'll have you know threat groups saying, my target has got Fortigate or Fortinet in place. My target's using VMware. I'm going to develop exploitations that take advantage of those particular software or hardware packages. And you know that's unfortunately what, what allows them to get in. And that's sometimes how we discover some of these vulnerabilities as well is we find that someone's been exploiting it for weeks, days, months, years, and it wasn't until the wrong wire got tripped that we actually detected it, but it could have been very much further down the breach than we would have liked. Uh, so the last one I wanted to talk about is how cyber criminals run their operations like a business. It just blows my mind. Yeah, you uh, love this. <laughs> yeah, it's just, <laughs> I didn't know this was an option. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Kaspersky recently conducted an analysis of 155 dark web forums from January 2020 to June 2022. They examined job postings and resumes that contained information about full-time or long-term employment. Threat groups are offering $240,000 salaries to tech job seekers. How big is this market and how do they pay their employees? Are they operating exclusively in countries that support or ignore this kind of activity as long as it's directed outwards? This all goes back to that discussion we've had, and you mentioned it, right, as, as these kind of these ransomware groups being functioning organizations and things like that. Um, of course, they're going to hire, right? They've got roles they've got to fill and whatnot, and of course, they're looking, you know, to increase their headcount and they're going to, you know, use whatever features they can. And of course, there are dark web job forums. Of course there are, right? Because where do you go and hire someone to write you a piece of malware or write malicious code? You, you go to a place where they hang out. So I'm not surprised to see this type of thing coming up. Huge props to Kaspersky for doing this analysis for us. I think this is such a fascinating way to look at threat groups and really some fascinating statistics to pull out of some of these dark web forums and things like that. I find it funny that the more you read about this, the more you see that they have hiring requirements and they have, you know, minimums and, and job prereqs and things like that. Performance reviews. I can just just imagine what it, it is. It, you know, the line, if, 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 if you took those same group of people and you renamed the company and gave them a legitimate source of funding, they'd be, uh, you know, some of them would be unicorns in the startup space. But Nonetheless, you know, it's it's interesting that that's how they go about finding it. You know, a couple of things that I've noticed in, in kind of my career and going through these here. First off, when you talk about ransomware, not you, but when we talk about ransomware being a multi-billion dollar industry, or we talk about losses being measured in the billions or payouts being measured in the billions, well, that money's got to go somewhere. It doesn't just buy houses in Eastern European countries filled with Lamborghinis and Ferraris and stuff like that. It goes towards maintaining infrastructure and developing new pieces of malware. And it goes towards hiring folks to do these types of things. And we, we, I think we talked about kind of the ransomware industry breakdown where I've got those middle people who do that kind of negotiation side of things. And I may have a team with dedicated malware authors. Well, they've got to be compensated for their time, right? And what I think this does is it breaks away from that notion of hackers being, you know, a group of maybe rebellious people hanging out in dark rooms and just, you know, collectively working towards the greater good by exposing weaknesses. You've got criminal organizations hiring for roles, paying people for their time, understanding that the people that they're hiring, you know, it goes both ways, Chris, for, for you and I and for them as well. The line is very thin between good and bad. So if I've got someone who's an amazing coder and they just understand the Windows operating system very well and they have a legitimate job where they're writing security patches, for example, right? Let's say that they know that operating system very well. 
Well, all I've got to do is try and lure them away and say, hey, I want you to do the exact same thing. Just don't patch. Find that vulnerability. Give me that information about that vulnerability and then move on to the next one. I want to take the patching part away from that. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to pay you more. And I'm going to give you an easier schedule. I'm going to let you work from wherever you want in the world. And your money is going to be paid in cash or it's going to be tax-free or something. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of ways to, to go and entice folks. And I think, interestingly enough, you'll continue to see this happen again and again and again for the same reason tech companies will hire talent. They know that the best talent out there is sometimes already employed somewhere else. So we want to lure them away. And uh, that's, that's, that's how it goes. You know, that's how it works sometimes. So it's an interesting, interesting take. But again, huge thanks to Kaspersky for going through this. One other thing that you asked about this is kind of where they operate, um, what countries they're operating and supporting and things like that. I, I'll be honest and say that I've seen every country represented in these types of activities. Don't forget whenever you start to see arrests made in ransomware activities or in malware development activities, a lot of time, there's maybe five countries that pop up and are familiar to everyone, if you will, when it comes up. But that doesn't mean there's not operations all over the globe. I think there was an interesting part of this article that talked about the Conti group. Uh, Conti was that financially motivated group way back when. I think we've talked about them as the, mm-hmm. uh, the Fin7 uh, right. as well, where they, the had, uh, they had a JIRA instance. Right. And, and they had salaried workers and they had bonuses and performance reviews and employees of the month and stuff like that. And I think this goes a lot towards that. If I'm going to hire you to break into organizations and do illegal stuff all day long, I've got to make it worth your time. I've got to make it worth your time. And I want you to continue working for me because you're really good at doing those things. So I'm going to do everything I can to make this a great workplace and give you all the balance you need. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to have some funny dreams tonight, I think. (laughs) I appreciate your time again, Matt. It's uh, good conversations. Likewise, as always. Thanks, Chris. And a huge thanks again to everyone, Lima Charlie users and our community podcast listeners. Absolutely love being able to chat with you on a weekly basis. I'm looking forward to the next one. Cheers. Thanks. Before we move on to the next segment, I just want to take a moment and introduce an upcoming conference called Mission Control taking place in Arlington, Virginia, on October 5th and 6th this year. To tell us a little bit about the conference and who it's for, I have Maxime lamoth Broussard, founder and CEO of Lima Charlie here with me. Mission Control is a cybersecurity conference that we're putting together with a very kind of distinctive direction. We wanted to put something together that was looking at innovation and change in cybersecurity. So we're really looking forward to getting different points of views and to see where people think that the the direction of how we build cybersecurity should be done going forward. Why did you decide to put on a conference? We decided to put on the Mission Control Conference because we realized that there's a lot of cybersecurity conferences out there that are targeting practitioners or you know security you know threat intelligence some of the very kind of the fundamentals of cybersecurity but nobody was really kind of putting together a whole picture of where as an industry at a macroscopic level how we do things so not necessarily the things that we do but how do we approach them how do we do them getting all those different perspectives so when we had that realization Um, we decided to put on the conference together. Who is Mission Control for? Mission Control is for a lot of people. Um, I I think fundamentally, I guess I would say anybody in cybersecurity uh, should be interested, obviously. But uh, it's really for people that probably look, uh, you know, that, that know about cybersecurity pretty well. So maybe not so much brand new to the field. People that have seen how it's done today and that have thoughts and opinions and are looking for, uh, you know, maybe getting out of firefighting, just changing the way that things are done. So if you've ever sort of had those kinds of, you know, higher level thoughts about, you know, why are things this way, we hope that you're going to get a ton from the conference. What can I expect if I attend Mission Control? 
If you attend Mission Control, you can expect many different things. Some hands-on workshops, training, but also a lot of talks uh, given by people that see cybersecurity very differently. So we hope that this kind of gives you new ideas, new thoughts, makes you want to try different things. And, and really fundamentally, at the end of the day, we hope that, that you can leave with the, the drive to try to do things differently and maybe talk about your experiments and your outcomes for next year. You can learn more by visiting the Mission Control website at missioncontrol.org. That's M-S-S-N-C-T-R-L dot org. Up next, my conversation with Heidi and Bruce Potter, the driving forces behind ShmooCon. Thanks for being on the show. I'm really excited to speak with you both. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. Absolutely. This is a different kind of interview for me, and I think we will mostly be talking about a very different kind of convention. But I was struggling with how to get this conversation going and decided to just start with the obvious one. Please introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about what you do in your day-to-day. Oh, well, okay. He's pointing at me, so I guess that means I go first. I'm Heidi. I, I do run ShmooCon. That's kind of like my my de facto, I guess you'd call it my J-O-B. But otherwise, I'm mostly a stay-at-home mom. I have three kids. I volunteer in a lot of aspects that um, influence their lives, PTA, scouts, all that kind of stuff, and mostly just keep busy doing that and, and the con. Volunteer um, is Volunteering is basically most of what I do. So, I'm Bruce. Uh, I support Heidi in the conference and all the work that she does. And beyond that, my day job is I'm a CISO for a financial services startup in Manhattan right now. And yeah, you're here on the show because we're going to talk about ShmooCon. So at the, at the very highest level, what is ShmooCon? Oh, goodness. <laughs> it's, it's tough to describe, right? Like, it's funny because it's not really, I mean, we, I think it's kind of in the vein of the old school HackerCon. Um, but we focused more on, you know, defensive techniques and things that are pushing the ball forward in that regard than, than attack. And that's something that I think has been you know, different and makes us not like the old school hacker cons, which oftentimes are like, you know, cool attacks and tricks you can do and that kind of thing. We'll accept talks like that. But a lot of it's more around, uh, you know, how do we actually move forward as as an industry? But it's decidedly not an industry event, right? Like, this is not a thing where um, it's not not RSA Junior or anything like that. I like to say, you know, we're a computer security conference held annually in D.C., held together by duct tape and spit. That's usually how I describe it. (laughs) Uh, And how long has it been running? This was, what was this, year 18? 18? 18. 18. Year 18, um, with a year off for COVID. So we've been around, um, you know, 19 years. Yeah, I think 2005 was the first. So we're, we're, you know, it it can almost drink. It's getting close. (laughs) Almost. It can drive. It can drive. It can drive. Costs more on insurance and all those kinds of things, right? So, yeah. Um, Yeah, labor of love. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so what made you decide to start a conference? Like, what was the impetus? Was your, Were your lives not busy enough? Well, so it's funny. Um, I actually wasn't there for the initial conversation. It was um, the idea was born actually out of the greater Schmoo group, which is uh, a group that um, actually Bruce founded um, a number of years ago up when we were living in Alaska. I, I, I hate to call it a hacker group, but a group, it, I mean, that's what it was. It was a group of hackers who, you know, got together and did projects and things like that. And they were, where are you guys? Were you guys at DEF CON? We're Black Hat. You were Black Hat. And um, they were sitting around the bar and uh, a bunch of our friends ran TourCon. And I think the conversation went something like, well, if they can do it, we can do it. Okay, well, let's just do it. And we got home or they got home. I was back home. We had little kids at the time. And the next thing we knew, there was an email from one of the other members saying, okay, well, I took out a mortgage on my house. I didn't tell my wife, so we need to make this successful. Let's go. And, and and we went. <laughs> yeah, he he went in a reserved space at the Warman Park Marriott and was like, "Please tell ten of your friends so we can at least sell out and I can pay off this note." And uh, and so the whole yeah the whole goal the first year was um, so he paid back the bank and so we were successful <laughs> at doing that. And uh, I think yeah, I mean if he hadn't done that, I'm sure we would have waffled for another year or two. But he uh, he <laughs> yeah, I, I think you know the 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 nature of. Of the Schmoo Group and then a lot of these other organizations are like, you know, it takes, you know, maniacs that are willing to do things like that to to start something, right? And and so, you know, I think Heidi and I have been around a lot of volunteer activity in, in our lives. And it's interesting, like you get one motivated person who will take the, the, the risk and then a bunch of people follow in behind. 
and can make something great happen. So in this case, you know, it wasn't either of us, but another Smoo member that took the jump. And then after a couple of years and it grew, it was way more work than I think he wanted to do. And Heidi had been, you know, supporting him and, and you know. Yeah, doing... we ran it together. I yeah. mean, he was, he was, you know, kind of at the, at the, the, at the very top and I was running things right behind him. And then he was like, okay, well, no more. And I was like, okay. And so, and then from then on, it's, you know, been on my lap to, to take the reins, um, which is fine, but it's been, it's been quite the journey. It's been a lot of fun. One, I love the commitment to an idea like that. Somebody who will go mortgage their house because they know this thing has to happen. Like that is uh, my kind of risk aversion algorithm. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate that a lot. And, the, and one of the questions I had later in, in the interview was, what is the Schmoo group? I wasn't sure which one came first, sort of a chicken or the egg thing, but you answered that. So the Schmoo group came first. How did that come about? And, and what was the purpose? So, um, well, the group, well, the, the forming the group was just wanting to bring like-minded people together. So as, as many people did back in that time, you know, hacker groups were forming all over the place and we were up in Alaska and we worked at a, at an ISP, the large, the state's largest ISP. And so it was kind of a common ground to bring easily bring that type of people together but the name has a different origin, and it's not as exciting as anybody ever thinks it is, um, nor does it come from the place that people think it, think it comes from. Yeah, so the, Heidi and I were living with a, a friend of ours who um, was a sysadmin at Internet Alaska, this ISP we all worked at. And, uh, you know, he, he was kind of like-minded. We did lots of weird projects and we're learning technology. And this is like the mid-90s, you know, Internet was just being a thing. And working at the ISP, we got to provision ourselves dedicated internet to the the house that we shared. So we were living with we them. Kind of had to beg um, for it. Yeah. But. So, but we, and so in like <laughs> you know, 1995, we had dedicated internet to our house, which was super. Only because we had three employees. Yeah, yeah it was super unusual, house, but yeah. you know, we we made use of it. So we had a little server and all kinds of stuff. It was the and, uh, desktop living under my desk? Right? Yeah. And um, so the guy uh, he he worked with us, and his name's Andrew. And one day he was dating this woman and uh, she dropped off his lunch one day at work and he, he wasn't available. We had a staff meeting going on. So the person at the front desk is like, hey, can I, yeah, I just leave it here and I'll give it to him. And so on the lunch bag, she writes, for my little schmooeykins. <laughs> and I got to tell you, when you're like a 22-year-old sysadmin working with a bunch of other 22-year-olds and your girlfriend calls you a schmooeykins, like you do not live that down. So from when the, it's written on your lunch that's bag, right, with like little hearts and stuff during the meeting, <laughs> right? Oh, man. So, so from um, that instant forward, he, he, everybody called him Shmoo, and and so he registered Shmoo.com and it lived in the the server under under Heidi's desk for a long time. And so when we got the idea to start something more formal around all the projects and weird stuff we were doing. We were like dirt poor. Well, and we came up with a bunch of other names, but we couldn't afford. Couldn't afford a domain. Couldn't afford a domain. <laughs> I mean, yeah, domains were really expensive back then, <laughs> relatively speaking, for a bunch of 20-somethings. And so uh, we had worked at Internet Alaska, and a lot of us started in tech support, and the alias was uh, TSG, tech support group at Alaska.net. And so we thought it would just be a, a cute homage to have the Schmoo group, TSG, at Schmoo.com. And so we just co-opted the TSG thing and, and he that, wasn't using it. Yeah. So. <laughs> he, and so, and he actually moved out of the house and screw.com was still living on our floor. So we just created the the group out of, out of necessity for not spending money and a cute little homage to our past jobs. And that was, that was how the Schmoo group started. Very cool. I would, I would suspect such a high tech conference to start somewhere like Alaska. It's uh, it's really because we were broke. And yeah. Yeah. Cheap. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a good, there was a good tech scene in Alaska in the nineties. Like it was really, I mean, it was a good lug up there and, and we had meetings and, and there was a lot of high tech stuff and then the bubble burst and just obliterated it. Um, but it was, there was it's a lot. coming back though. It is. They're, yeah. There's yeah, still good work going on up there for sure. Great stuff up there now. For sure. Unrelated to this interview, but for the ISP up there, are you guys doing all line of sight, uh, ubiquity radios and stuff like that? How do you? No, it was all terrestrial. Um, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was, there's very little, uh, wireless work going on. Uh, we worked with local telcos and, uh, uh, primarily in Southeast Alaska, Central Alaska, and then up in, up in Fairbanks. Uh, and, you know, it was challenging. Like, I, I mean, we had 56K circuits going in to service whole towns. Uh, and so it was really, you know, saturated. And, and when I, I think when I started, we were about 20,000 customers on, um, you know, a couple thousand modems with two T1s. 
Right. And so the T1s were just obliterated 24 hours a day. Um, How much did we pay for those T1s? 20 bucks a month. Oh, no, the no, T1s. The, the T1s themselves. The T1s, remember? the loops were like 20 grand a month grand just for the month. loop, just not even for the, the IP sound. charges. So it was, uh, it was adventurous. And like, we, you know, we did weird things. We made the first DSL network in the state under the nose of the telco without the telco knowing. They thought the telco. They later bought us though. So it was. Yeah, fine. the telco <laughs> bought the company later, but they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't know. Um, they thought the internet was like a fad. And so we tried to get them to install DSL um, and they didn't want anything to do with it. So we started buying alarm circuits with no load coils to customer sites, which is basically code for just give me a piece of copper from our, you know, our, our data center to, to them. And after we sold, you know, a hundred of those, the telco called us up and was like, Hey, are you an alarm company? We're like, no, why do you ask? And they were like, cause you're buying all these alarm circuits. So we had to fess up and tell them we were pushing like, you know, multi kilobit signaling down it and doing DSL. And so they went to the Alaska Public Utility Commission and threatened, uh, um, you know, they were going to get rules in place. So they couldn't do high speed signaling on alarm circuits. And then we told them, like, look, there's clearly a market. Why don't you just buy some D slams? We'll do the IP backhaul. You do the, you know, you do the local loop and we'll all make money. And they're like, well, that's a great idea. I was like, well, no kidding. It's a great idea. It's what we tried to do a year ago. And instead, we had to go build this under cover of darkness. So uh, it was it was, I mean, crazy Internet engineering in the 90s, man. It was I mean, you don't think about it anymore. But the early days, of the ISPs were oh, just well, and then wild west. I nuts. worked in customer service and marketing. Do you remember Internet in a Box? Actually, do you remember that? I don't know. It was a big phrase that might predate me a little bit. OK. Well, I so I had the, the privilege of working under the marketing marketing director who came up with that term out of she was in California at the time I think, but she moved up to Alaska and I got to work under her. It was amazing. But she um I flew into all the different towns and villages with a team and our job was to convince people that the internet was okay. <laughs> <laughs> So we would fly around. It's a bunch of like, we were, you know, 22 year olds, legitimately like 16 people to a room kind of in a hotel wow. trying to convince these towns that really, really it was okay. The internet was safe, which is kind of the same conversation we're having today. Really. Yeah, fair, right? So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds like an exciting way to spend your 20s. Yeah, that was good. It was very formative. <laughs> Um, so the conference itself started in 2005 with about 400 attendees and has grown every year until it peaked at around 2,200. It seems to have been capped. Why did you decide to limit the number of people coming to the conference? Um, well, for a couple of reasons. I, I think probably, well, I hate to say the number one reason, I guess, but the, the number one reason is we run it out of our house. So my house is only so big, can only hold so many boxes that arrive every year, and you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, why don't you get a warehouse or something? And, you know, there's all kinds of cost and stuff associated with that. Tw uh, 2,200 people, the stuff associated with running a conference for that many people fits inside a 26-foot box truck. It works, right? Beyond that, beyond the logistical side, we find that in the spaces that we have available to us for the configurations that we like to use, that that's a good number to preserve sort of, it's, it's a small enough conference that you have like an intimate feel while you're there, but it's still large enough. You're always going to meet someone new. Mm -hmm. And so we like, we like that size. Um, you know, people, not everybody agrees, but oh, well, um, <laughs> you're not going to make everybody happy all of the time. We've been this way for years. It works for us. You know, it's, uh, well, and, and when we, we, I mean, kind of capped attendance, it was unusual at the time. You know, there were a lot of conferences that were just unlimited. They just hope as many people could show up as, as they can. But since then, there's been plenty of other conferences in the space that have limited attendance. Um, so we don't get nearly as much shade yeah, about it as we, we used to, we but used we used to, to get some yeah, pretty we were, serious I guess shade. we were really one of the first that made that hard decision yeah. early on. But then again, I mean, not as many conferences had the same issue we did either, where we were running up against the edges of our space all the time. Um, and I... Um, I like being all on one floor. I don't like to spread the conference out amongst, you know, different floors or even different hotels. If you think about now, DEF CON's huge. It's a different deal. I'm not picking on DEF CON, yeah, yeah. but I don't like that me that spread out feeling, especially for a group of only like 3000 people. Right. Um, I like to be contained. I like the opportunity for us all to be together. So that that number allows us to do that. F5 day is what Shmoo, the Shmoo community calls the day tickets go on sale. Uh, can you speak about this a little and explain why you take that approach? Well, um, so it's really funny to me as a Mac user. For years, I didn't understand the joke. I didn't know what <laughs> F5 day meant. I had to have somebody explain it to me because it it, that doesn't reload anything on a Mac, right? So <laughs> at least it didn't. So <laughs> 
I, I was that was lost on me for about the first year that was ever in yeah, play. Yeah. I was like, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and so it's it's funny because the you know we sold out basically every year, whatever cap we set in attendance, we we've sold out, and and we've always done ticket sales ourselves. We don't use Eventbrite or any service. And the first year they, was PayPal, but it was you know was wasn't a rush. We sold out. I think literally. Couple days before the con. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We sold out, but, but barely. And so, you know, we decided we were going to write our own shopping cart. We wrote our own ticketing engine. And the first version of it, uh, I remember they checked in the code for the final one. They said, well, there is a, there is at least one race condition here that if we, <laughs> multiple people in the last second try to buy the, a ticket, will oversell. And we all laughed and thought, ha, 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 that would be so funny that multiple people in one second would be trying to buy a ticket. And guess what happened? And like two years later, we were like selling out in like 30 seconds. We're like, oh my gosh. And so things got really weird for a while um, where we were trying to kind of nurse along the cart that we had made and the infrastructure that we had. We're using like a CMS to front end it. And when we built this huge cluster of systems. When he says um, cluster, he really does mean we had like, it was like 16 desktops. Yeah, it was I a mean, full yeah. rack of, of computers. and it was Blinking so- lights as far as the eye can see. Oh, yeah. yeah it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was so inefficient. And so, um, and even that didn't end up working. So we ended up uh, rewriting the whole thing. It's just this little chunk of C now that's just a FIFO. Um, and-, and we had help from the community to do this. Um, it was a team of about three, three people, four people with some reviewers. Yeah, rewrote the um, whole thing. And now it's wicked fast. Um, but we, that means we just sell out in seconds, right? And so we, we always have more people trying to buy tickets at the top of the hour when tickets go on sale than are available. Um, and so it causes the, the F5, like everyone's just refreshing and the, the, the peak, the peak traffic is, is pretty immense, actually. I mean, you get a few thousand people all trying to reload the same page, you know, several times a second, you know, it's tens, if not hundreds of megabits of traffic. It's a manual DDoS. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what it was. It was hard to build a system that could put up with it. But it's also really weird, right? Like we need code that for 365 days a year basically does nothing. And then for a few seconds each year, Puts up with like just getting hit with a bat. Twenty seconds a year. Yeah. Um. But and now that story is just part of our lore, and I think it's kind of self feeding. I mean, I always claim if people just bought the tickets they needed instead of the tickets they thought they needed or the tickets they think they want. Yeah. Everybody, you know, it'd be fine. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I'll never know because that's not what happens. But. uh, But it's fine. I think it's fine that it's part of the story. I'm just glad that we don't. We don't have the same stresses that we had in the early days where, um, you know, things could fall down in the middle of ticket sales and we'd call it off and it'd be like, well, okay. And well, then, and that's, I mean, be- originally it was yeah. like you could try to buy the ticket when you reserved it, like that you just go to the page and try to buy it. And we would end up with tickets in all these weird states where you don't know, did they purchase it or not? Who purchased what? And when you start dealing with credit card companies and have to reverse all these transactions, like they get really cranky, right? Because that looks like fraud. They don't want to deal with it. So that's why we have this two-part process where, like, they reserve the ticket, we can inspect and make sure everything went okay, that there weren't bots or shenanigans, and then we allow you to actually purchase it. And so that's taken a lot of load off of us as well, is, like, gives us a breathing room that if something does go wrong, we have time to fix it before we have to go deal with the credit card companies. Because the minute you have to deal with the credit card companies, like, it all gets awful. And expensive. I and mean, expensive. you know, there's there's re- there's other reasons, too, why we've chosen not to do – well, we had conversations with Eventbrite and others. And actually, there's a write-up on the website about, you know, why we've chosen not to go some of those routes. But it's also just part of who we are at this point, right? Like, it's it's part of our story. It's part of why we do things the way we do. And it's working. I mean... Yeah. That kind of leads me to, when I was researching for the podcast, you stated that the conference is not meant to make a profit. If it's not meant to make a profit, then I'm curious what the purpose is and how do you measure success? Yeah, we never we never started the con with the intent to to make a bunch of money with the intent to sell it at some point the intent to it was always about the community about giving back to the community it still is. I mean, we do make money to be clear, we make enough to, to cover our expenses every year and have a little bit left over. And that you know, that's very good. It'd be very bad if that wasn't happening, <laughs> because it all rains down on our pocketbook. Yes. But no, it's always been about the community. And I mean, I, I think measuring success, well, obviously, we're still selling out in seconds every year. So that's, you know, that's good. Um, sponsorship, you know, sells out in about two weeks every year. So that's a good indicator right there. You know, just the feedback in general that we get from talking to people tells us that people are still enjoying the event and that they, they like coming. Well, and, and we've 
gone out of our way to be transparent with what we do. So every year, uh, Heidi runs a own the con talk, which provides all the transparency on our finances and our operations and the goods and the bads that happened that year and, and that kind of thing. And, and the purpose of that is, is really twofold. One is so that people can see what we're doing and that we're trying to be good stewards of, of their money in the community. And then to solicit feedback and, and take what they say about here's what went well and here's what you can improve on and and that kind of thing. And, and, and some of that's a surrogate for not being a nonprofit, right? If you look at security B-sides and other organizations that chose to be a nonprofit, there's all this overhead associated with that, that, um, you know, the process overhead, you have to have more people involved and whatever. And the reality is, you know, driving these events is, is complicated. The more people you put into it, tends to make it more complicated. So here, you know, Heidi, she, I mean, she leads by consensus, but she's the person at the front. She can drive everything, make sure everything happens the way that it, that it needs to. Um, and then there's this counterpoint where we would then open up the books and say, here's how we do everything. And we don't need to deal with all the 501c3 nonsense and, and, and that kind of thing. And so I think the feedback consistently through the own the con process has been helpful, but also continues to validate that people are enjoying the event. They're learning from it. They're, they're, you know, making relationships and, and all these kind of things, which is what we want to see out of it. So, you know, we, that, that, that's, I think, another good way to measure success is like we solicit feedback and by and large, people are like, this is important to me. I like the event and it, it, it's helped me out. Cool. That's successful. This one is uh, for my own curiosity. Can you explain why the moose or the lack thereof seems to be a central theme in ShmooCon? Yeah. Well, that, that ties back to the, uh, the Alaska, the Alaska tieback. Um, and uh, there's a lot of fun stories with moose in Alaska taking down tech. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, less moose than ever is kind of like a no bullshit kind of thing, right? So, so. Yeah, they're, moose are pretty angry, if not majestic, but very angry creatures. And so, um, you know, the, the, the guy who started the con was actually stationed uh, in Anchorage for a while. And there's training on, like, what not to do with moose, which is basically don't do anything to moose. <laughs> like, don't, don't disturb them. Don't touch them. Don't antagonize them. We and, were locked out of our house for six hours. Yeah, like, if a moose sets up and sleeps in front of your front door. With their baby. That's, with, that was kind of the key, right? Yeah, with the baby. Like, you just let the moose lay. Because if you anger the moose, even if they don't hurt you, they're going to run around the neighborhood and do stupid things to people. So you just let the moose let the moose yeah. be. So. But there's um well, just a simple like a simple example if you Google it there's uh they were tightening lines or pulling lines phone lines maybe or I don't remember what kind of lines um along the um Alaska Highway right yeah and um something didn't something wasn't right and so they had to go mm-hmm. follow the lines and what they discovered was they had entangled the moose antlers antlers on a moose and so there's this poor animal like dangling in the air oh no <laughs> you know that moose is just hanging from an electrical wire like yo yeah. what's up so they had to lower him back down and untangle him and then he's really angry right and you got to deal with this really angry but not no longer tangled up moose i think they tranked him uh, but whatever yeah. but. so i it's yeah no they're 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 it, and so it's kind of a gag like so every year we have less moose than the year before but we started with zero so it's an easy and i promise think we actually keep. have a lot more now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. i think we keep adding more yeah yeah, I was really curious about that. I, I worked in a, a logging camp in northern Alberta in my 20s. And, uh, oh, nice. Yeah, we had all this training around bears uh, and, and stuff. But I was more scared of the moose than anything oh, yeah, because I'd, be. I'd see them go into these groups of poplars and just like tear Disappear. down trees. Like, Oh, yeah. man, they're, 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 they're awful. Um, I mean, they're, they're really cool animals. But um, yeah. They, and and they, they, they're not as scared of you as Bear, bear will well, that was it. Like a bear will more. stay away from the saw, yeah. but the moose, if it's in the rut or whatever, they'll yeah, charge anything. They, They're yeah, terrifying. They, um, yeah. yeah, we've yeah. seen we've seen a lot of moose in our day. But. Also, congratulations on surviving uh, logging in Alberta. Like, it's, a, <laughs> it's a proper. I grew up fourth generation lumberman, so like oh, that's yeah. a proper dangerous uh, um, uh, career to have been in. So good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I well, I didn't think I needed to go to school. I'm just going to go out and make my way in the world. And I went and did logging camp for a year, and I came back and I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so I worked in the family lumber company throughout like like uh, you know my schooling up until through high school, and I knew like when I graduated, like I'm going to go to college. I dropped out eventually, and I didn't. Yeah. But I didn't go into logging. I'm like I'm not doing lumbering. Yeah, but you didn't my just life. go to college. You walked away from what uh, RIT Cornell. He had he had rides everywhere. I went to a state school and in Alaska instead. Decided to go instead. to state school in Alaska. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, you met me, so I guess it's okay. It worked out. 
Yeah, when I was in high school, my goal was either to sail off into the sunset or run away to Alaska. So uh, I've done a bit of sailing. I haven't been to Alaska yet. So <laughs> there's still time. There's still yeah, time. yeah. Still I, there. I, yeah. I'm just entering the third act, is what I uh, tell them. <laughs> <laughs> um, community, charity, and giving back seems to be a big component of what is at the core of ShmooCon. Uh, where does this desire to give back stem from? Well, I just think that's been a big part of. I mean, who we are and always have been. Um, but, um, specifically t-shirt charities, I will give partial credit to that, to our accountant actually, because he didn't want me to sell anything in DC because he didn't want to deal with, uh, doing taxes in DC. And I was like, well, yeah, but they're going to want to, they're going to want t-shirts. What do we do? And he's like, well, how about if you give them away? And so we, we're not selling t-shirts when we, when people get their t-shirts at the con, I'm, I'm giving you that t-shirt. That's mm -hmm. you. You're getting that for free. You're just making a donation to a charity because every hundred percent, the money that you give us gets passed on to the charity of your choice with that little poker chip that you drop in that bucket of your choice. Um, and I get to write off the t-shirts. So it, it's kind of a win-win. And, uh, you know, all, we always support the FF and then usually the other charities match whatever kind of funny little theme that we picked the year for the con. So this year, of course, it was Broadway Cares because we had the Broadway theme going on. Um, last year was a bunch of food banks because we had a picnic theme. One year was the bicycle theme and we did World Bicycle Relief, putting bicycles, you know, in, in the hands of kids across the world. And it's been a lot of fun um, to do that. And I think, you know, I think people have a lot of fun learning about the different charities we've been supporting. And I, um, I think some of it was too in the early days, you know, as the industry was, I mean, you think back to 2005 and what was going on, the cybersecurity industry was just exploding and uh, there are people making money hand over fist doing all kinds of wacky stuff. And, and I think that, you know, part of this was also, let's keep this reachable and approachable and give back as much as we can and, and, and whatever, and, and not be part of that escalation that was happening. Right. And, and by and large that that's carried through. I mean, our ticket prices have only gone up a small bit over yeah. two decades. Uh, and, and last and, year was our first ticket price really since we left the three tiered yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's been, um, you know, I think part of the, the ethos of the event from the early days is to, to recognize that we want to be something that an event that a student can go to an executive can go to anybody can go to and they can afford, you know, it's not free. You put a little skin in the game, but you get a lot in return. I'm sure every year is different and that a lot of it blurs together, but was there any specific year or particular event that took place at ShmooCon that sticks out in your memories over the years? I caught a snippet about a chandelier breaking. Any oh, that's happened that? twice, actually. Oh. <laughs> we've, we've broken two chandeliers at ShmooCon, um, once at the Wardman and once at the Hyatt. I don't know if the Hyatt knows that. Sorry, Hyatt. Um, <laughs> Surely we weren't the first and the last to break oh, chandeliers. No, 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 no. Um, so I think the first year, the one at the Wardman, there was a schmooball fight amongst the sponsors in the hallway. Which Brand I, new hallway that they yeah. just built. So um, I walked out into the hallway and they were having a schmooball fight and I had to I had to shut it down. And right as I shut it down, uh, you know, sh the chandelier got hit. I have a piece, though, that actually I need to have made, made into a bracelet. Um, <laughs> and then um, the one at the Hyatt... Uh, we were, they were tossing t-shirts from the stage and it was getting a little out of hand. And right as we were yelling, stop, one of somebody threw that last t-shirt, landed right in the chandelier and glass rained down on the audience. It was terrifying. Yeah, nobody got hurt, which is a miracle. Yeah. Nobody looked up, so it worked um, out. But I, I think the most iconic year, though, that, Snow, that people remember is Snowmageddon. Snow, yeah, Snowmageddon. Yeah. The, the first um, DC Snowmageddon, we started the con on the Friday of Snowmageddon and there was no snow on the ground. And by Saturday, there was two foot of snow on the outside of the Warman Park. And basically, oh, we, were, we were on lockdown. We were on lockdown. Like there was, a week afterwards. Yeah, it was right? crazy. And we still had the, we still were having an offsite party at that time. And like people were just walking down the middle of Connecticut yeah, all Avenue. All the streets were shut down. Because everything was shut yeah. down, state of emergency. But the bar was still open. The, the, the people <laughs> at the bar slept there to make sure that, because they were like, they're going to be open so that they get our money no matter what. We're like, well, we're going to go make use of that. So <laughs> people marched right down the middle of Connecticut Avenue and went to the bar and had a party and i mean it was it was crazy it was people the only taking, thing going um, on in northwest dc that day <laughs> people were taking trays from the um downstairs at the hotel and going sledding outside 
the skylight broke that year from the weight of the snow. Oh, yeah, like so the, this huge skylight, inside. the atrium over the bar, like, collapsed. It was snowing inside um, the hotel. It was bananas. We ended up with people at our house for up to a week. I think it was, like, a full week after. Yeah, because there was another snowstorm after, the, so everybody's yeah. flights were scrambled. We had friends from Gibraltar staying with us who had never seen snow. First time seen snow. And the guy kept asking, can I go out and plow the snow again? I'm like, yes, you 100% <laughs> can go out and plow the snow again. Go nuts. But like, have at it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, that was, yeah, that, well, and that's the, uh, that's the year too that I found out I was pregnant the night before we went to the con. Oh, wow. So, so yeah. it was, that was a crazy year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very iconic. Everyone yeah. keeps wanting to relive that one. Everyone's trying to draw an inside straight to get another snowstorm for another Schmoocon, but I don't know if we're going to see it. Then there was the year the, um, crane dropped a load of construction materials on an attendee's truck outside the hill. Flat, flattened yeah. the truck just completely. And Could have been our car because wow. we almost brought an oversized truck and it would have been parked right there, but it wasn't. So yeah. that was nice. I mean, so sorry for the attendees who's. It's like 40, 40 pieces of sheetrock, whole bundle yeah. of sheetrock fell from eight stories up just obliterated the car. Um, yeah. It's terrifying. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, we've had um, fire alarms pulled in coffee shops. I mean, we've got all kinds of fun stories. But yeah, but we're all getting older, so the, the stories are less common these days. I think right, being older and slower. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. Predictability oh. becomes more of something we appreciate as we move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Or sleep. People go to bed like ten o'clock or exhausted. <laughs> you know, you'd think the stories would still continue because younger people would be coming. Maybe we just don't hear about them anymore. And they're yeah, like, yeah. Well, don't don't tell. They're me. better at their shenanigans. Yeah, <laughs> they're keeping right. out it of the in. loop. I don't know. From what I understand, ShmooCon is about questioning our assumptions and moving the ball forward as an industry to help everybody keep up with things that change and evolve. What are the key takeaways from this year's convention? It's an interesting question. I I think that the uh, you know if we if we look at the changes in the IT industry at large and the push to like SaaS providers and the push to more user centric computing and and that kind of thing. You know, obviously the the attacks are following you know into that space, but I think some of the 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 research and, and work that people are doing isn't necessarily going in that direction. So I think that there was a lot of really interesting talks this year, but I'm not sure that you know the what people are are defending against is lining lining up against what we're seeing from from an attack perspective. But I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I think in some ways, the attack surface continues to shrink um, in our industry that we're making progress slowly, but but surely. And so the, the, the things that we are seeing are more novel in nature, but we're, we're not seeing the same, you know, weird catastrophic sky is falling kind of talks. And, and conversely, like the defensive talks where they're trying to solve huge problems because there aren't a lot of huge problems left to solve where getting more piecemeal and, and down kind of into into more niche solutions. So, you know, I, I think that that's a trend that we've seen for for a while and and I imagine will will continue. So, I, you know, I, I think on balance, it's a, it's a good news story. Um, I would also say that just from the, the, the situation in the world, like uh, COVID obviously happened. We didn't have an event in 2020 as, as a, or 2021, technically, because we did have one in 2020 right before COVID really hit. And um, a lot of conventions saw a downtick in submissions in their first post-COVID year. We and, did too. and yeah, and we did as well. And so this year, what was nice is that we saw an uptick and there was more, more, still, still lower than normal, still lower than normal, yeah. but there was still, there, there was an uptick. And so I think, you know, the cons not happening for a year took a lot of it off of people's radar. And so whatever research that they were doing and prep work and whatever just didn't align for the first post COVID year, but for the second year, things had started to get back to normal, which is, which is a good sign. You know, I think it's, it's a sign Na- nature's healing. So. <laughs> <laughs> the flywheel is spinning at, uh, Good speed yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You've had a very interesting vantage point overlooking the cybersecurity industry for almost 20 years. What are the biggest changes you've seen in the industry and culture? We've grown up a lot. <laughs> like, I don't just mean like personally, like, you know, I, I, I think like some of us have. Yeah, some of it, yeah. You, you know, you think back to when we started in, in 2005, there was only a handful of undergraduate cybersecurity programs, right? And most of the people who came to events like ours um, had learned all of the stuff that they do self-taught, was self-taught. Yeah. it was on the job it was you know in the evenings it was whatever and because of that i think you also had a lot of generalists who had dabbled in a whole bunch of stuff 
And so we've seen from a workforce perspective, a lot more specialization, a lot more, um, you know, training and, and diligence around the training and structured curriculum. And because when you're learning in an unstructured way, like it's, it's great because you get to be creative, but also you don't really know what you're learning, right? You can be learning the wrong things. And, and now, you know, at least with more structure, we're able to kick around curriculum and understand, you know, what, what are these students learning? What's important in the job market? What's, what's good? What's bad? And so, I think from a workforce perspective, it's obviously grown a bunch, but it's also, I think, specialized. It's become more mature, you know, and, and, and again, on balance is good, but it's, it's a little weird because there aren't as many young generalists as we used to see, right? Like you used to see in the early, you know, early days of the hacker cons or whatever, like somebody that knew networking and knew OS internals and knew, you know, physical security and a thousand other things. And now people come in with like, I'm a, forensic analyst or I'm a, you know, network security person or whatever, which makes the conferences all the more interesting because suddenly there's all this diversity of, of topics that you weren't exposed to when you were, you were in school. And so, you know, that's been, been a huge, huge change. And, and, and I think, um, you know, the workforce is not, you know, not a leading indicator of where the industry is going more of a trailing indicator. But I, I do think that the, the maturity in the workforce has been a, a real net positive, and we've certainly seen it manifest itself at the, at the con. Well, and not just ours. I, I think that's an inter- interesting point that you make because as we watch cons come up in other, you know, across the country and across the world even that are kind of in our same space, you look at what they're focusing on and they're either, you know, they're more neck down, like mm-hmm. we're going to, you know, they're picking their topics or even if you look at the tracks that they're offering – you know, they are more neck down. Yeah. Um, you know, we kind of have our catch all with bring it on, right? We'll still be like, yeah, you got something interesting. Yeah, we might put it on stage. Let us see it. But um, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know. I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, look, I've added yeah, value man. today. Excellent. <laughs> for a minute, though. Yeah, just that was all the value I'm going to add. It's all downhill from here. Yeah, the maturity thing's the interesting one. Uh, we talk a lot about that internally at Lima Charlie is uh, sort of how cybersecurity looks a lot like software engineering did 15 years ago. And we saw the the maturation towards a sort of engineering process and, you know, CICD and all that stuff. So uh, interesting to hear that from you. I found an interview with Heidi somewhere that stated that Shmoo had a limited run and that it might be coming towards its final hurrah. Is there anything there you can share or is it steady as she goes until it doesn't? No, yeah, that's that statement's still true. Um, but I'm not, you know, there's no official statement yet. And there will be there will be something after. Um, it just won't be this. So right. that's about as vague, vague <laughs> yeah, as I'm right. willing yeah. to go or about as specific as I'm willing to go. But it's it's my belief that nothing can last forever. Um, you know, that there's room for other things to come behind it. I don't want to take this to the point where it's it's, you know, it should be on its way out. I want to yeah. leave while it's still good. Yeah. Um, and I want to have good things come behind it. So, um, you know, I, I, that point's coming soon, but it's not next year. Or was it this year? I've heard a couple of people think <laughs> that this was the last year and that's going to sneak out the side door. <laughs> yeah, like, Be right back. Bye. Um, no, no, it was this, this year was not the last MUCON nor is next year, the last MUCON. So, all right. All right. This is a question I ask of everybody on the show, and it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Um, do you have any predictions for the future? So I think back years ago, I worked at Booz Allen, and I was given a talk at Black Hat. I don't remember what the talk was. And uh, the reason I remember I was working at Booz Allen is because I swore on stage, and I got quoted in some magazine uh, swearing. And before I even landed back from Vegas, I had a nasty gram from Booz Allen PR. It's like, please refrain from swearing on stage again. And I'm like... You should have heard all the f bombs. All they got was the goddamn it in this quote. Like it was like <laughs> that was that was a lot of swearing. So, um, but but what, I, what I've been referencing in the quote is, you know, I was thinking back. There was this great Air Force study on on what we now call cybersecurity from 1971, where they're looking at like all the characteristics of at the time modern computing and the problems that we're having with respect to you know different uh, um, attacks and vulnerabilities and whatever. And if you looked at the space around 2003, 2004. I was like, we haven't accomplished a goddamn thing in 40 years, right? Like, you, you could take that report and change a few technology Pretty names. Pretty sure that was the quote. That was the quote. <laughs> and you could change a few technology names. And other than that, like, it felt like all of it was still true. Like, every inch of it was was still true. And I've gone back and, and reread that paper a few times in the intervening years. And it it finally starts to feel like 
it's some of it's not true anymore, right? Like we've actually made progress. We're actually, uh, um, you know, formalizing our body of knowledge. We're learning from the past. We're, you know, out in front of some problems to some extent. And, and there's, there's a chance to create defensible systems and defensible networks. And if you look at like the, you know, the, the cost, the, 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 the budget of large banks, you know, if you look at City and Goldman and other people and how much money that they spend, you know, the, the amount of money they spend on cybersecurity has been huge and measured in billions at times and is now starting to come down. And what that tells me is like, there is now a maturity that you can, you can reach where you actually feel like I'm doing the right things and I'm building a defensible enterprise. And when the big banks figure it out, that all trickles down over time, right? Like the technology, the trade, the knowledge becomes more operational to smaller and smaller and smaller businesses. And even now I'm seeing startups with 30 or 40 or 50 people that have CISOs at an early stage. They're getting their SOC 2. It's not that the SOC 2 is a be-all end-all, but it is a sign of some maturity and that they're actually thinking about these things and whatever. And, you know, that's, that's awesome. I mean, like the whole reason I'm in this industry is personally is because I, I thought it was cool, but I actually cared about it. Like I actually wanted to make, you know, from the early days of Heidi and I in Alaska, like we own networks that were like critical to people's lives and we wanted to protect them. And it was very hard to do 30 years ago. And and so, you know, seeing the ball get pushed forward, seeing the industry evolve, I think for the future, we're going to see a continued trend where you actually can at any scale, small or large, build defensible systems that you can run without any adverse actions happening against you, which is pretty novel in the history of computing for for sure. Yeah, and I, I love the optimism. I usually don't get that with that question. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the Potter household. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe oh, I'm awesome. getting old. I'm not as cranky as I used to be. <laughs> He's pretty cranky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. Uh, this was a really fun conversation, and uh, I hope to see you at ShmooCon again next year. We'll probably be there. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you too. <laughs> yep. All right, thanks. And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We've been having a lot of fun putting this show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.